So the question I have for you today, we're going to talk about uh, the connection between worship and missions, but when I use the word worship, what comes to mind? What do you think of? My hope would be that by the time we finish this morning, uh, that you would have a much more robust understanding or impression of what is worship. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4. We were in John last week, uh, so it's uh, beginning in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to read verses 1 through 26, and as you're looking for that, I want to give you just a little bit of context of what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are walking from Judea all the way to Samaria, or to uh, uh, Galilee, which is about a little more than 70 miles. So it'd be the equivalent of us walking from here to Jackson, Michigan, right? Just to give you a little perspective. If any of you guys decided this afternoon, hey, let's walk to Jackson, I'd be like, really? But the crazy part is the, the average Jew, the normal Jew, would actually walk out of their way. So imagine if we said we're going to walk from here to Jackson, but let's not walk through Ann Arbor. I don't like those people in Ann Arbor. And you walk another 15, 20 miles out of your way just to avoid walking through. And most of us would say, I don't care who's in Ann Arbor. If I'm walking to Jackson, I'm walking through Ann Arbor, right? So that's kind of the, the context. They're walking to Galilee, and they kind of go and do something that normal Jewish people or the average Jewish person would do. They walk through Samaria. And the reason that people didn't like, there was a ton of hatred between the, the Jews and the Samaritans, and it goes back 700 years. So the Assyrian king rolls in and basically uh, takes siege over Samaria, and a lot of the Samarians leave and are dispersed and, and move other places, but some of them are taken captive and taken back to Syria. And then, which was common in this day, Assyrians were given the best land, the best houses, and they moved and transplanted themselves into Samaria. And then if you go back, I think this is in 2 Kings 17, the story if you want to read it later, there's this, it's kind of a pretty fun story. Well, I don't know if fun's the right word. Anyway, read it for yourself. You can decide if it's fun, interesting, or whatever. But uh, lions keep coming in and attacking the Assyrians. And so they assume that the lions are doing this because they don't worship the god of that land. So they send back to the king, and the king sends a priest. And the priest comes, but the problem is the priest isn't very good at what he does. So he only gives them a little bit of the Jewish faith, and they kind of kind of take on this whole new religion. As a matter of fact, if you go to Samaria right now, there's still people who practice the Samaritan faith, which is kind of like a, uh, it's not kind of like, it's just a warped version of Judaism. It's not really, it's not Ju Judaism, but it's just, it's just a strange, but anyway, that's what's happened. So the, the, so deeply seated in these people is a group of people, who, there's, there's political uh, prejudice, there's religious prejudice, there's ethnic prejudice, all of that exists, but they, to, all that to say they're very hated. And all that to say that when you read in the scriptures a story like the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, it was purposely told that way because no Jew would ever want a Samaritan to be the hero of the story, okay? And I just give you all that to know that there's just a whole lot of, of difficulty, if you will, between these two people groups, okay? So as I read this story, uh, as I usually do any of these stories like this, uh, I just want to encourage you to use your imagination as you uh, read along. Be in the story. Imagine being there. Imagine the heat. Imagine the dusty air. Imagine traveling. Imagine walking from here to Jackson and walking through Ann Arbor. Whew, those Ann Arbor people. Just kidding. If you're from Ann Arbor, I'm totally kidding. John 4, starting at verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, which he knew would make them nervous, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
right? Not a big deal for us, but a first century reader of this would have been like, wow, he went through Samaria, verse five. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That means it was noon, so it was probably very hot, very dusty. Jesus and his companions are tired, they're hungry, and they stop. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and, and we drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will be, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman had answered him, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying this. You have no husband for you have had five husbands and one who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not, do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will te tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just pray in these next few minutes that you would open our hearts and you would open our minds, that you would allow seeds of truth to be planted that would grow and bear fruit a hundredfold. Lord, I just pray in this story that you would expand not only our understanding of worship, but our ability to worship, our, our hearts to worship. Lord, I pray that we would leave different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. Amen? So one of the things that stand out whenever you read the Gospels is that Jesus did not concern himself with what the social expectations were. He kind of went against the grain often, right? And it created a lot of, of tension. He, he went out of his way to do things differently, I think, because a lot of the things they were doing were wrong, but also because he knew this was the, the only way to really get to the people. He was always breaking what I would call the socially acceptable rules, right? And so in this case, he's, he's going through Samaria. That was a no-no. And he's talking to a woman, and he's, he's alone talking to a woman. So if you were Jewish, if you were a Jewish man, you didn't talk to a woman 
alone unless it was someone within your family. It was just a way of protecting any indiscretions, any, but that was the socially acceptable way to do it. You just didn't talk, you didn't make contact with a woman, especially when it was just the two of you. And by all interpretation, it was just the two of them at the well, right? So he's alone and he's with a, this woman. This woman happens to be Samaritan. And to make it even worse, she is somewhat of a scandalous personality. Right, there is something about her, and he probably would have picked up on it, and, and most people would have known even the time of day probably that she was at the well might have given <clears throat> some of that away, but she was a, a person of bad reputation. Right, what's our mission statement here at Grace? We are a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus, and I would say that if we really want to live like Jesus, we ought to have more of a scandalous reputation that people ought to be seeing us interacting with people who probably are far from doing the things we think they should do, right? We should be hanging out with the wrong people if we really want to help them to find their way to God. But Jesus sees behind this woman's behavior, and he begins this incredible life-changing interaction with her. So this is just a good place for us to stop for a minute and just ask an internal question. How often do we disengage with people because we are offended by them? We're offended by their lifestyle. We're offended by something they've chosen to do. We're offended by their political leaning. We're offended by, you could come up with all kinds of reasons, but there's something about Jesus being able to engage with people whose behaviors he wasn't accepting of, but he never made them feel that way. He wasn't offended by them. So there's, there's just a good opportunity to ask, if we really want to be like Jesus, are we able to move towards people who, on the surface, sometimes cause us to be uncomfortable. Their lives are messy, and we don't want to get into that whole mess with them. But what I love about Jesus is he, he's never afraid of anyone's mess, right? And it's a good thing, because if you guys aren't aware, we're all a mess, right? And he's not waiting for you to clean up your mess before you can come to him. That's who Jesus is, and that's who he's calling us to be to others. Sometimes I think the evangelical church ought to see us as scandalous. And you can talk to me about that later if you want to. If I offended you, I'm okay with that, okay? Just to be clear, we're a mess. Jesus accepts us. We are to go to people whose lives are a mess, and we are to engage with them in life-giving conversation. So back to our story. Jesus asks this woman at the well for a drink of water. It's a simple request. In verse 7, he just says, give me a drink. Uh, there's a whole sermon in here sometime that I want to do where I tie this to the crucifixion. What does Jesus say on the cross? He says, I thirst. I think there's something for us in knowing that this is part of uh, a deeper meaning too. So he says, give me a drink. And then in verse nine, the, the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? I think she was surprised, but I think she was probably even a little bit disgusted by the, by the question. I think, and this is just my projection on the story, that she may have actually thought that Jesus was hitting on her because it was against social norms. She would have known, you're not supposed to talk to me. He's already violated. So where is he going with this? Now, she doesn't know who he is, and I, you know, but, but it's very likely that she thought, here's a Jewish man who looks down on me, but he's willing to make a pass at me. So you can almost hear and discuss when you read it. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus says something to her that in the end is going to change your life. He says, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living 
water. Now, just to be clear, uh, it's easy to read this story and spiritualize the whole thing because we're reading it in context of the Gospels and all of that. But when he says living water, she's not thinking spiritual. She's thinking water that moves. Living water in the ancient world was basically just flowing water. And you think about the, the Romans are, are building aqueducts and moving water from here to there. If you were super wealthy like the Romans were, you actually had water that would come to your home. So when he says living water, she's thinking, oh, this would be sweet, right? Water's gonna come to me and I don't have to go to the well. Now, that's just another one of those things. You just got to stop and think about it for a minute. We have this luxury of turning faucets and out comes water, at least most of us do, right? And so we don't really comprehend just what a pain it would be that every drop of water you use in your home, you have to go get it somewhere and bring it back to your house. And it's not even like going to your backyard. You got to travel. You got to fill jugs. You got to bring it back, what you're going to cook with, what you're going to wash with, all of that, okay? So, so she's pretty excited. She says, okay. But I think she's pretty skeptical at the same time. So she says to him in verse 12, are you greater than Jacob? This is a well that Jacob built. If you go to Samaria now, when I was in, uh, studying in, in, in Jerusalem and Israel, we went to Samaria, we sat at Jacob's well and we drank from the well. It's still there, it still produces clean water. It's an amazing well. But she's looking at the well and she's saying, saying are you greater than Jacob? Jacob gave us this well centuries ago. It still is a great well and you are gonna just come along and give me living water. And Jesus responds and says, yes, I am greater than Jacob. Look at verse 13. He says, everyone drinks from this water is going to be thirsty again. But anyone who drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And I think the woman is probably looking at him like, what are you talking about? Right? And again, we can read it in all the context that we know. She's going to get there. But right now, she has no idea. This guy has lost his mind. He is going to give me water, and I'm never going to be thirsty again, and I'm going to live forever. Okay, I'll, I'll take a glass of that. Right? But she's, but she's still like, okay, sure. Whatever you say, mister. You get to verse, verse 15, and she says, okay. I think she's calling his bluff. <laughs> give me some of the water. You're so smart. So... I don't want to be thirsty again, and I certainly don't want to come here and draw water. Jesus turns the table on him, right? On her right away, and he says to her, okay, but go call your husband and come here. Come back, and we'll take care of this, right? And then they have this dialogue about the fact that she uh, not only doesn't have a husband right now, but she's had five husbands. Jesus uh, has a, a prophetic understanding of who she is, and, and because of that, it helps her to understand that he's not your everyday Joe, and they get into this, this incredible conversation about her heart and, and who she is. And, and this is what I want you to see. As soon as he gets to a heart issue, she tries to change the subject, right? All of a sudden, it's personal. You, know, you have five husbands and the one you're with even now, and she says, well, let's not talk about me. Let's talk about worship, Right? Let's talk about church. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about anything. Let's not talk about my heart issues. She's actually trying to turn the conversation away from what's probably a bit of shame and embarrassment for her. She's like, okay, I can see you're somebody special, but let's not talk about me. Let's talk about worship. But the interesting thing is, worship is exactly what Jesus is talking about. The fact is, there is a connection between living water and worship. There is a connection between living water and worship. There is actually a relationship between worship and a lack of thirst. 
right? There's a connection between worship and eternal life. Jesus said, this is to us, in another passage, he says, this is eternal life that you know me and the Father who sent me. The Bible tells us that Jesus inhabits our worship. Jesus responds to her attempt to change the subject. And he says to her in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Because of Jesus, everything is changing. The entire scope of worship, the entire way that we relate to God is changing. And what he's saying to her is it's no longer about a place. They're trying to figure out, do we worship here in Samaria? If you go to Samaria now, they still have their temple. They still do it their way. And they're saying, but you're saying that we have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Who's right? Who's wrong? And he's saying it has nothing to do with a place. It's all about a person. The time is now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I want to be a true worshiper. Do you want to be a true worshiper? Amen. What we need to take hold of this morning is the the only way to access living water is through worship. The only way to access living water is through worship. So what I want to do for the next few minutes, the last remaining time, is I just want to answer four questions. And the four questions is, what is worship? I want you to leave with a good understanding of what worship is. What does it mean to worship in spirit? What does it mean to worship in truth? And then the last question I want to answer is, what does this have to do with missions? What is worship? What does it mean to worship in spirit? Because the Father is looking for those who worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? And what does it have to do with worship? So the one thing I want you to hear is, worship is so much more than those songs that we sing before I teach. Now that is a a form of worship, but that's actually just a means to get us to worship. It's not actual worship. As a matter of fact, you can sing those songs and not be worshiping. You know that, right? You can can learn all the behaviors. You can learn when to raise your hand, when to sit down, when to say, yay, Jesus, all that, and not be worship. Worship is a state of heart. It's not anything. And there's many things that can lead us to it. And music is a wonderful thing. in our lives, a wonderful venue, a wonderful tool in our lives to lead us to worship, but we need to be careful not to think, well, that's worship, because it's so much more than that. One of the things I say all the time, and probably have heard me say it many times, is the movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. God is always moving. God is always inviting. Jesus is always at work. The Spirit of God is at work in our life, inviting us into new experiences with him, inviting us to believe and understand new things, inviting us to change. The discipleship process is a process of hearing the invitations of God and responding to those invitations. So with that mind, that the movement of God always starts with an invitation. Worship is an active, appropriate response to the invitations of God in your life. Worship is an active, appropriate response to the invitations of God in your life. The key to this is active, appropriate response. In other words, it's, it's ongoing. You don't, you don't achieve worship and you're done. Worship is a state of being. It's a state of mind. It's where you are. It, it's, it's all the time. It, 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 it has to go on. It has to be an appropriate response. It has to be the right answer to the invitation of God. If, you, if, you're, if God is inviting you to something and you say no to what God is inviting you to, then that isn't the appropriate response. 
So the best way I can explain it to you is with an example or two, or maybe three. Um, I have a good friend, many of you know him, his name is Denny. Uh, Denny is uh, the most passionate sunrise watcher that I've ever met. Uh, I have gotten countless photos of sunrises uh, texted to me by Denny. When I see a great sunrise, I think of Denny. And I believe that God has invited Denny to worship regularly by watching sunrises. He gets up early, he goes down to the lake, he sits on the edge of the lake, he watches the sunrise, he talks to Jesus. That's his invitation from the Spirit of God. He is just this passionate sunrise watcher, right? That's, that is a form of worship for Denny. And when Denny goes and he has one of those morning and he, and he sees God in all of his majesty and his beauty and it's another day for him to take a breath and do it, he comes to work, he works here and when he walks in the office, he is, he is a person overflowing with living water. Just like Jesus said, those who worship me, will, a well will come up within him. But there's something that God has invited Denny. And I'm not saying this is for all of you. Maybe this is striking with you and you're like, I need to do that more. But this is Denny's rhythm, right? God has invited him. Hey, come, get up early. Spend time with me. Watch the sunrise. Talk to me while you watch the sunrise. That's his thing. And he's overflowing with living water when he does it. I have another friend, her name is Carrie. A lot of you know Carrie. But God has given Carrie a gift and a passion for young girls who are disenfranchised, overlooked, abused, uh, whatever word you want to put in there. And so she uh, works for one of our ministry partners in Impact, uh, House of Providence. And she spends times with these girls who are in kind of aging up and having trouble even within the foster system, but she loves them. She, she pours her life into them. She is perfectly wired. God has invited her, get this, like the movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. The invitation for Carrie is, this is the passion I've given you. Will you serve these girls and help them to find their way with me and find their way into solid forever homes and all of that. So Carrie is worshiping when she's loving on these girls who are disenfranchised. I think the impact campaign is an opportunity for all of us to worship. Now, it can feel like we're just twisting your arm and trying to make you give, but I am confident that if you ask God and God gives you uh, what you ought to do, that the response, right, God has given you an invitation to participate in impact, that when you participate, it will be an act of worship. Worship is the active, appropriate response to God. God is initiating, and we are responding to the initiation. I just want you to hear this. Obedience is worship. So sometimes the invitation from God is going to be, stop doing that. Stop going there. Stop reading that stuff. Stop looking at that crap on your computer, whatever it is. But that very act of saying, okay, God is inviting me into something more. I'm going to respond appropriately to what God is asking. That can become an act of worship. Okay, so sometimes it's what he's asking us to do, but sometimes it's what he's asking us not to do. The second question we are going to answer is, what does it mean to worship in spirit? 
And there's a twofold answer to this. And the first is that it's all spirit initiated. That, that the more we have the spirit of God at work in us, that God is going to stir things in us. He's going to show us things. It's a, it's a spirit infused activity. You don't really worship all out of your own ability. You can't. You need the spirit of God as a part of it. But in this context, it's most likely when he says in spirit, that what he's saying is you need to worship with all that you have. It's a modern phenomena that we have separated the body out into mind and body and spirit and soul. The, the ancient world didn't have that. So when they talk about you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, they were saying you should love your God with your whole spirit, right? That, that spirit just meant everything. All of who you are, you are spirit and, and to worship God. So it's this picture of, of bringing everything that you have to the table, Worshiping in spirit is worshiping with everything that you have and everything that you are, holding nothing back from God. What does it mean to worship in truth? Once again, that's a twofold answer to this, but first, worship is a journey of understanding and growing in your understanding of who God is, right? If you don't know who God is, how can you worship the true God? How can you worship in truth? Last week, I put these two questions up on the board. Who is God or God is? And I am. And what I said was how you answer those questions affects everything that you do, how you respond to life, how you move through life, how, what you put in there. And either what you put in there is truth and it will give you life and it will be living water that wells up in you or it will be a lie and it will be bondage and hold you back, right? So, so the first part of worshiping is truth is understanding that our theology matters, who God is really makes a difference in how we respond to him, how we can worship him, his attributes, all that he's done for us, all that he's doing, understanding more and more how much God loves you beyond your wildest imagination changes how you worship. But it's also about what, how you fill in the blank with I am. Who are you in Christ? So some of this is about your identity, but I think the other part of this is, is to really worship in truth is to be honest about where you are. So if you've ever read the Psalms, one of the things that's refreshing about the Psalms is the psalmist just tell God how they are, even when they're mad, even when they're confused, right? There's all these Psalms of lament where they're being honest, but I think sometimes this is one of the hardest places to be honest. Can we just admit that? Because we think we got to put on the good face when we get to church. We got to say the right thing. Well, as long as I'm putting on a a face, as long as I'm putting on pretense, then I'm not worshiping in truth, right? It's okay for you to say, I'm not really pleased with where my life is right now. I'm not really happy about, matter of fact, that's truth. So some of this is just bringing the real you to the table. And something happens when we are willing to worship, even when we are dissatisfied with things around us, that God kind of moves into that and God helps us in the midst of our pain or our hurt or our confusion or our anxiety, in the midst of our dread, in the midst of our disappointment, we worship and God shows up in the midst of that. He doesn't always just snap his fingers and poof, it goes away, but suddenly God is in the midst of the pain and living water wells up in us. It's an active, appropriate response to God. And when we do that, it helps us to rise above our circumstances and it unleashes life in us. That's what I want you to see in this passage. Jesus is saying, when you worship, when you come to me in spirit and truth, living water wells up in you and overflows out of you like a spring. 
Back to verse 4 in our passage, or John 4, verse 23. It says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship. When I read that, I immediately thought of 2 Chronicles 16, 9, which is one of my favorite verses. It says, the eyes of the Lord run throughout the whole earth to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his, who worship in spirit. Just the very same thing we were talking about. God is looking for those so that he can strongly support you. God is seeking people whose entire being, their spirit, their hearts, their soul, their minds are completely and honestly his. The last question we wanted to answer was, so what does this have to do with missions? And just like last week, the answer is everything. John Piper is a very prolific author. He's written over 50 books. Uh, He's also a recently retired pastor of a church in Minnesota. Um, With all the books that he's written, all the sermons that he's preached, uh, he's best known for one line. So this is the quote uh, that that one line comes from. It says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. That's his moniker. That's what John Piper is most known for. Worship exists, excuse me, missions exist because worship doesn't. Our job and our calling is not to do missions. Our job and our calling is to make worshipers of nations. And the only way to make worshipers of nations is to go, right, is to be the only way you are ever going to lead your friends to Jesus so the living water can well of them is to go to them, is to be with them. The only way we're ever going to see uh, the, the, the message of Christ take hold in these closed countries is for somebody to go and somebody be willing to risk and, and be purveyors of truth. Missions exist because worship doesn't. We are purveyors of truth. God reveals truth to us and then immediately says, now go and tell others. I want to kind of wrap things up by sharing a story uh, that's had huge impact on me. Uh, this is a photograph. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Um, yeah, this is a photograph. Uh, I was younger then. That's Scott Shaw and myself sitting on that side of the picture. Uh, but we were in northern Africa in a closed country, a country where it is illegal uh, to share your faith Uh, and uh, we met a lot of really amazing people, but the two gentlemen sitting straight across from me, um, their story has stuck with me in a profound way. Uh, Armani and Akbar are their name, and at the time of this sitting, they had just been released from prison. They had just, like, my memory, it was within the last few days, had been released from prison. And it wasn't so much that they went to prison that impressed me. What impressed me was how full of joy these two men were. It was like sitting with a couple of people from Acts who were like, it was so cool. We got to go to prison for Jesus, right? We, we got to do this. Like, God has given us the privilege. And I'm like thinking, man, I, I don't have any categories for that. I don't have any understanding of that. But then they talked about how while they were in prison, uh, the, the 
prisoners would ask him, like, why do you hate our country? And they said, we don't hate our country. We pray for the country all the time. And they began to have conversations about how the scriptures call them to pray for their leaders. And they ended up praying with some of their, their prison guards. And it's, it was so Acts Church to me, like nothing I was saying. But all the time they're telling it, they're just, you can almost see it in their smile. Like they are the happiest two guys in that whole room. And it's because they got to go to prison for Jesus. They got to suffer for Jesus. It's just, it, it's blown my mind to just think how, how little we really understand of the persecuted church and of people who are willing to do whatever they have to do to help nations become worshipers. This is what impact's about. This is what we get to do. And the fact of the matter is, if we don't do it, what's at stake? Everything. Living water. People perish for a lack of knowledge. The woman at the well is a story of invitation, right? Jesus is inviting her to something beyond her wildest imagination, her greatest hopes and her dreams. And she accepts the invitation. And if you read the rest of the story, she becomes one of the very first evangelists for Jesus. And God is inviting you and I to do the same. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. What is God inviting you into today. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just grateful. Uh, I'm grateful for the story. I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to sit at that meal in Africa and meet those men. I don't even know where they are today. They uh, fly under the radar because we're not supposed to know because they're still in a dangerous place doing a dangerous thing. But Lord, I just pray that you would be with them. You would be with this church uh, in this country. You would establish your name, that the nations would rise up and worship you, that you would use us in some way to bring that about. But I just pray, even in this moment, that people sitting out here would know exactly what the invitation is that you're inviting them into. And I pray that they would respond appropriately to that invitation. Amen. We prayed for you uh, before the service. We have a group of people that meet in the chapel a half hour before each service. Love for you to join us in there if you want to. But what they heard uh, this week is that someone is suffering from a left shoulder and may want us to pray over them. So if that's you and you know right now your left shoulder is bothering you, come on down, let us lay hands on you and pray that God desires to bring beauty out of some difficult situation. What we heard was beauty from ashes. So if that really kind of hits a nerve with you and you want us to pray for that as well. But if you have a spiritual need, a physical need, we just encourage you to come down. We have some wonderful people down here who would love to pray for you. God bless. Thank you. Don't forget to buy your tickets.